1: In the last couple of years, we've talked a lot about the very hard hit restaurant sector of our industries. You think about it, during the pandemic, they tried to stay open, they had to reduce you know, their capacity, they had to put all sorts of measures in place for pandemic restrictions, and then you thought, oh, when the restrictions ended, this is going to be great for restaurants. And then along came a very tight labor market, labor shortage situation, and now inflation. Does that mean that fewer people are going to eat out? And how are restaurants dealing with this? Well, to talk more about all of this, we're joined now by Ian Tossenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian.
2: Good morning, C. How are you doing?
1: I am good, thank you. So tell me, this is like the latest thing for restaurants to deal with. How is the inflation situation hitting restaurants?
2: I think we're doing an MBA here in restaurants over the years. Ah, uh, well, uh, you, so it's not all bad. but it, So a couple things to keep in mind in perspective. We're seeing maybe 7%, maybe 8%, depending on the commodity, increases in wholesale costs to restaurants. But bear in mind that food uh, isn't 100% of, you know, in a licensed restaurant, at least anyways. It's not 100% of the sales. So food will count in your mix to maybe 30 to 35% or maybe even 40%. So it's not like your entire. So if you had a million dollar restaurant, and your and your prices went up, or your costs went up seven percent. It's not like you just hit the whole seventy thousand dollars. So that gives us a little bit of chance to work on two things. There's two ways we can deal with this: we can increase prices, where we can sort of, uh, or we can decrease costs. Or the third actually the third reason is we can work on mix. So we can start to, and we're doing this. Uh, let's say, uh, for example, I don't know if this is the right example, but let's say we're using romaine lettuce and romaine lettuce has gone up, but we're still seeing that kale uh, is reasonably priced, then you might find chef will switch from um, romaine to kale and make a kale caesar. Because one of the things that the hospitality industry has been so adaptable and proven itself simply over the last couple of years is that it's very innovative and it's going to find ways, one thing it's not going to allow is just to let these costs flow up. So when you go to a restaurant, you're just going to pay all these costs and say it's just the way it is. So working in all sorts of ways. like uh, So another example would be technology at the table. So you can utilize your labor more efficiently by a technology that's uh, pay at the table. So if we went for lunch and we wouldn't have to wait for our server, we simply have an app that says, okay, on a pay, the server's gone. Okay, table just uh, 10 just paid and away you go. So we don't have to wait what allows is that server to serve one or two more tables. So you get more efficiency. Um, We're seeing uh, profit margins in restaurants that were maybe 4%. um, They've decreased. And so you're seeing owners of restaurants taking less profit virtually, you know, they're probably down to 1% of, of um, before tax profit. Now knowing though, this is not going to be, you know, a forever situation, they're prepared to invest back into their guests because the last thing we want is to lose our guests. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen.
1: Right. So you're saying that restaurants are not necessarily raising prices. Is that kind of the last resort situation?
2: Uh, they'll, they'll raise prices, um, but they'll but they'll do it in a way that um, you're not going to sort of walk in and go, "What? Like, you know, my my hamburger was ten bucks. It might be twelve dollars now, but it's not going to be eighteen. They will eliminate. Items that are unprofitable, so that you know, if it's, say, they have a steak in the menu and they just, you know, in order to make right. money in the steak, it's going to be $50, they won't serve it. They'll take it off temporarily and suspend it. And we'll bring items on that um, they can make some money, and that's a better price point. We're also seeing, you know, innovation around, uh, you might go to a restaurant with your husband and decide, we don't want to, this happened in, in, in the past where, you would sit down and share different share plates. And so you average your price down, but you still want to go to a restaurant. You don't have, you know, two full meals. And so what the restaurant will do is make sure, in this case, their appetizer menu is really appetizing, but it also has some profit margins built in so that you can encourage a change of mix and sales mix by saying, maybe you don't want the sirloin steak, but why don't you have... You know the chicken wings and you know the, right. the salad appetizer. So there's different ways of doing it, but we are seeing. There's no questions. We are seeing prices have gone up in restaurants, but I don't think it's 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 a guest killer at this point.
1: <laughs> okay. One of the other things I noticed is that restaurants and opening hours have are really fluctuating right now. In like some of them closed more often, uh, reduced hours. Is that something? Is that the labor shortage?
2: It is uh semi. It, it totally is. It's not a cost thing. It's a labor shortage. So we're down, uh, you know, 30,000 workers, uh, and maybe uh, now 35,000 in British Columbia. I mean, everybody's down workers. And so we have a lot of pressure on the government right now to streamline, uh, the, um, uh, a number of things, a skill for a worker program. We're starting a program in two weeks, a social call out to parents. If you got, if you have children at home that are working, go down to your restaurant, get some experience. Um, I've really upped the game here, and I'm not very popular, but with the city of Vancouver in particular, uh, is we've got to stop all this incremental red tape and and, um, bureaucracy right now and things like cup fees and return to cups. There's no capacity for a restaurant owner to sit and implement new programs. Those are important programs long term, but right now, you know, we are in a crisis and we're still in a pandemic Uh, unfortunately, I don't know that governments are necessarily getting that message. I think they think, oh, it's gone back to normal here. So we've really got to reduce the the time pressure and costs that government is imposing by programs right now that really are a priority to keep our industry alive.
1: So despite all of that, then, Ian, all of those challenges, what is Mm -hmm. demand actually like? Like, are people still coming out and going to restaurants?
2: Yeah, so we don't have 100 percent we might be getting close to it now, but you know, a couple of things are going in our way. Um, we did when we came, when we were open. So opening now means no, no vaccination cards or masks. Um, we still didn't have a hundred percent of the population going back to restaurants. There's still some electives, um, but we were so busy because there's so much demand. So the frequency of guests um, would probably went up initially. Now we're seeing more people coming back in the marketplace. So, our sales have not been affected, which is great because on top of that, incrementally, now is the restoration of tourism, and so that's been a life, life send So, all this is stacking on top of each other, having very positive incremental effects on our business. Um, had we not had uh, this built-in demand as a result of the pandemic, I think it'd be a different story right now. But no, it just seems that we've we've got a lot of business. People are still uh, they're being very select in how they want to dine out um you know there are uh, huge cost pressures with gas and and those sorts of things but um you know we see, we see travel and hospitality still high demand and um so that's a good thing and we our responsibility is to make sure that we don't kill the goose here by putting our prices up and people become uh, sticker shocked on the things that we do
1: well there's enough of that already going on out there I, ian thank you
0: yeah thanks to have a good day this is mornings with simi
1: Talk a little bit more about what we've seen unfolding in Alberta over the last 24 hours. So, Jason Kenney, the premier, announced that he's going to step down as leader of the United Conservative Party there after receiving a little over 51% of the vote in a leadership review. Now, technically, that's enough to stay. And in fact, he said he would stay if he got 50% plus one. But changed his mind, obviously, and decided that that is not enough now to stay on as leader. But there have been some other interesting aspects to this. Like, is he really going? Will he perhaps run for the leadership again? And what kind of challenge does this show for any kind of party that tries to unite two factions the way the United Conservative Party did? Joining us now is Laurie Williams, a political scientist at Mount Royal University. Laurie, thank you for being with us.
3: It's great to be with you, Simi.
1: How do you see the developments in what happened here? Like, this was the person who supposedly united the Conservative Party, and now, you know, a few years later, not
3: so much. Well, it was very, from the beginning, very clearly a fragile coalition. It took a lot of work to persuade the people. There's a lot of sort of personal animosity between and among some of these folks, partly because uh, of the floor crossing that happened under Jim Prentice. Um, people when wild rose and progressive conservative parties were uh, opposite one another in the legislature, uh, there's a lot of really tough competition going on. So, and it's not just sort of two parties, there are multiple factions within each of them. And we're seeing uh, historically that only one leader, Stephen Harper has been able to actually hold together uh, a conservative coalition party. So it was always going to be a challenge, um, but one of the things that I think was particularly problematic for Jason Kenney was that he made what he called a grassroots guarantee to listen to the, the members of the party and uh, and then engaged in very top-down leadership, which really annoyed the, the Wild Rose faction of the party.
1: Are there lessons here, do you think, for other party leaders when it comes to dealing with, um, you know, other mem- like people of the party who say, you're not
3: listening to us? Well, i mean it's it's difficult because the people who want to be listened to don't agree, and so how do you how do you bridge the divisions within the party, the different demands within the party and try to satisfy them? We saw this perhaps most starkly during the pandemic uh when there were people who thought that the uh the restrictions uh and mandates and so forth went too far. Some thought that they didn't go far enough um that I think is sort of a, a, the epitome if you like, of what it was that Jason Kenney was facing. As leader, but you know some of the folks that are analyzing this today are are, are just saying you know he, he didn't he didn't adjust to um, to the different things that were happening, the demands that were being made. He uh, you know, tended to to criticize and and even name call those who disagreed with him, and and that that sort of worsened the divisions.
1: Are are we seeing that, do you think, a different form of that on the federal stage as well? Because that's some of the issues that seem to be facing the federal Conservative Party.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's the same route. We've got two Conservative parties coming together um, under a leader who, well, first of all, the, the, the coalition happens because of an agreement between the leaders of the two parties. And then there's a run for the leadership of that party and Stephen Harper won that leadership at the federal level. Um, he managed to keep the divisions under control, but but other leaders have not been as successful as, as we've seen. And even yesterday, we see another division within the party with their finance critic, Ed Fast, uh, leaving the party because of those deep divisions over all, all kinds of things, in this case, fiscal policy, um, concerns around uh, the divisions between member, uh, le- uh, leadership contenders in terms of of, uh, inclusiveness of, of Canadian newcomers. Um, you know, those divisions are, are alive and well.
1: So do you think that Jason Kenney is actually gone? Is it possible he might run again?
3: That's the speculation. Uh, now, whether that's just his staff that are hoping that he'll stay on or, or Jason Kenney, not giving up, which would certainly be consistent with what we've seen from him in the past. Uh, so I guess the coming days and weeks will give us a better sense of what's going on. Uh, so today there's a caucus meeting, um, I think probably what the decision he made last night likely was under under considerable pressure from the executive of the party. Um, Today, it'll be the caucus that has its say and uh, the negotiation will be whether he continues as premier or not. And uh, and we may see that if he steps down as as uh, as premier, that he does uh, run for the leadership precisely because he's saying, when he used to say, uh, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, in a leadership race, he would actually be compared to the other contenders for that leadership. Whoever wins leadership, though, is going to have a huge challenge on their hands because these divisions are real.
1: They are real and they have another election coming up. So, Lori, thank you so much for your time. It'll
3: take you to me.
1: That is Laurie Williams, political scientist at Mount Royal University, talking about the developments in Alberta. And what makes them so interesting for every province and on a national stage is, I mean, it's not unusual to have two factions of a political party who have to come together. And it's been very difficult for, you know, on the federal stage, the Conservative Party to make that cohesion stick. As Laurie pointed out, you know, Stephen Harper was great, amazing at making that happen. Successive leaders have not been as good at making that happen. And now you're seeing that happen on a provincial scale, too, in Alberta.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. You
1: know, I'm starting to think that this whole Massy Tunnel replacement isn't going to happen, maybe not in my lifetime, the way things are going. I mean, no doubt it has been needed. I mean, I lived in South Delta for 20 years and I couldn't take the tunnel anymore, one of the reasons why we actually moved. So first you had the BC Liberal government back in about 2012 or so announced that they were going to replace the Massey Tunnel with this great big bridge. That turned into a political football, so much so that the NDP said, you know, if they get into power, they're going to cancel it, which is what they did. And then they took their time deciding what they were going to do with it. And now you've got the BC Liberals saying, hey, you know what, if we win the next election, we're going to cancel what the BC NDP have been planning for this situation. All this means is that if you drive that route regularly, you are not going to see any big improvements anytime soon. And that is frustrating. It's a headache. Joining us now to talk more about that is Malcolm Brody, the mayor of Richmond. Good morning. Thank you for being here.
4: Uh, my pleasure, Simi.
1: How frustrating is this for you with your community? This is a key key part of that community.
4: Well, the discussion where certain parties are trying to take us back to the future uh, is frustrating, but I have no doubt that the project as we know it today is going ahead. Uh, by the time of the next election, the contracts for the tunnel are going to be less. They, they will have mostly completed the Steveston Highway interchange improvements and some on the Delta side, as they will have the bus improvements. So, you know, we can we can talk about whether uh, we want to go back to uh, another time, but it's not going to happen.
1: So you feel like what's going on right now, having it back in the discussions, this is just politics?
4: Uh, yes, uh, I guess that's an apt descri- uh, description of it.
1: Okay, so do you tell me more about the work that is being done. Because right? a lot of people feel like the work isn't underway right now. What is being done?
4: Oh, the work is, is very much underway. What, what the current government did is they broke it into three sections the whole project. There's the bus improvements, which, you know, the shovels are in the ground making that happen. There's the Stevenson Highway interchange and basically twinning the overpass and straightening uh, that problem out. And the contracts have been let for that, and we're going to see work pretty soon on that. What is taking the time is the environmental assessment for the eight-lane tube tunnel, and uh, schedule says that that will be started in 2024-2025 uh, but design is very much underway, and uh, progress is being made.
1: Okay, so we're scheduled for an election, theoretically, in the fall of 2024. So you feel, is this work going to be too far along at that point? Uh,
4: definitely. Unless unless the new government, if there should be a BC Liberal government... Um, unless they decide that they're going to break a bunch of contracts, which I just don't see happening, uh, this, is, this is a done deal. And, and if it's not, and they want to dust off the old plan, they've got to go through a, a long process, and the delay is going to be even greater. So who's winning out of that when you've got a, a solution that there is unanimity between Richmond and Delta and the First Nations and almost every city Uh, in the region, is supportive of it. You have to wonder why we're having this controversy at this time.
1: Okay, interesting point. What does this mean for your community then, Mayor Brody? What does it mean for Richmond to have this improved replacement?
4: Of course, uh, all the cars coming along Highway 99 are coming through Richmond. Many of them are traveling into Richmond Uh, Ultimately, what it's going to mean is less congestion around this critical area, uh, one of the most critical spots and the biggest spots of congestion in the province uh, at this time. Uh, And it's going to improve that situation dramatically. So, but I do stress, we're not... You don't have to wait for the new tube tunnel to see the improvements. We're going to see far uh, before 2024, 2025, we're going to see the Steveson Highway uh, interchange and overpass improvements, and that alone is going to immensely improve the situation.
1: So then what would be your message to the new leader of the BC Liberals, who is the one that brought this up and said that, listen, we're going to cancel this?
4: Uh, my message is, from my point of view, it's not going to happen.
1: Would you rather he talk to you about this?
4: Oh, I I run into him regularly. Uh, uh, There's not a lot of discussion about this issue, but uh, yeah, sure, he can talk to me about it. Uh, My view of of the history of, of transportation in the last 20 years uh, differs markedly from from his, I should tell you. And so, um, you know, in, in, you what, just,
1: in what way? What do you mean?
4: Well, uh, he he takes credit, as he says, that the Canada line, where I had a front row seat for that one. Uh, he says the Canada line. Uh, was over basically over the objections of the mayors and and the way I see it it was the mayors who saved the project Kevin Falcon had declared the the issue dead and it was the mayors who insisted on resurrecting it and putting it through Uh, the big problem being the the necessity of the P3 uh, structure for the project which brought great controversy had it not been for that it probably would have been Well, no, it would have been much, much easier.
1: All of this, though, doesn't it show us, Mayor Brody, that this is why there's always this criticism is that we can't, we don't get these things done because everything, every big transportation project turns into some kind of political football.
4: We voiced our concerns from the very first day that they announced that they were going to have this big bridge without any consultation with the city of Richmond. It's been a controversy right from the start, and when the new government came in a few years ago, they did what should have been done right from the beginning. They sat down with the various stakeholders and made sure that they had a solution that was going to be viable for the cities. The cities are going to, are the ones that have to live with the solution and so surely they should have the largest amount of input into it.
1: All right. Well thank you for your time on that this morning.
4: My pleasure, Simi.
1: Anytime. Appreciate that. That's Malcolm Brody, the mayor of Richmond, uh, pushing back against the uh, announcement from Kevin Falcon, the new head of the BC Liberals. Uh, He was saying yesterday that if the BC Liberals are elected in the next election, they would cancel this Massey Tunnel replacement that the NDP government is doing and they would revert back to the old bridge plan that the BC Liberals had announced back in 2012, 2013, when that was about 10 years ago. But as you heard the mayor of Richmond just say there, he said, no, one, he doesn't feel it's going to happen, that this is going to be too far along at that point. And two, they don't like that plan. He said it never was a good plan. They didn't like it. They didn't consult the local communities on it. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Time for us to talk about World Family Doctor Day. It seems so appropriate for this day. There is going to be a rally held in BC to talk about this as well because the issue of not having enough family doctors is one that has resonated right across the province. We're talking almost a million people here who don't have that connection with a family physician. Here to talk more about that now, why we seem to be running out of doctors and like, where are they going? Are we not training enough? What is happening to talk more about that is Dr. Brinder Narang, family physician and our CKNW Global News medical contributor. Good morning, Dr. Narang.
5: Good morning, Simi. How are you?
1: I am good. Thank you. So it is World you know, Family Doctor Day today, a Bit appropriate for BC, don't you think?
5: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's a reason that today was chosen for um, the legislature um, events that are happening <laughs>
1: Okay, so there are some rallies, yes, to be held at the legislature today. We've been talking about this a lot, it feels like, over the last little while, Dr. Narang. Do you feel like all these discussions are getting through anywhere?
5: Yeah, I think if you asked me that uh, yesterday or the day before, you might get different answers. But I I think that uh, every day you, you, you hear a little bit more about what's happening. And so, you know, this has been... A problem that was not created overnight this is um been happening for years like there have been warnings uh, uh warning cries from people from within the profession is hey you know this is not sustainable um the lack of infrastructure support that is there um the, you know uh, antiquated nature of some of the payment um, fee codes and things that um, um, driver day-to-day work. And the uh, administrative burden is just rising and the overhead costs are rising. So this has been, this has been a crisis that um, was inevitably going to happen. Now, one of, the,
1: one of the other issues that you raised as well has to do with whether we're not training enough family doctors to really do family practice. Is that the case?
5: So it, 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 it's yes and no. I think it's not necessarily a, a question that we're not training enough doctors. It's that the people we are training to do family medicine are literally doing anything but family medicine. And let me expand on that. So what that means is let's say there's 10 people graduating at a family medicine residency class, which is a two year um, residency is the two, two years that you do um, to train in family medicine after med school. So these are people that once they're done, they're qualified as family doctors. Only one of them out of those 10 will probably actually go into what we call longitudinal uh, community family practice, which is, you know, you go see your doctor in their office, they'll do your preventative care, they'll, um, you know, do your um, chronic disease care and acute care if necessary. The reason for that is, is because they're... the jobs that family doctors are also doing now include work in the hospital, emergency rooms, um, obstetrics, substance use, and all those jobs will pay you about 30 to 40 percent more um, than um, running a practice will.
1: Right. So we say we, they've decided they want to be family doctors. They do the residency to be a family doctor. And then we say, by the way, you need to do all this other stuff. And then they decide, hey, that other stuff is actually um, pays more. So I think I'd rather do that.
5: Yeah. And also it's because a lot of them go into it with the goal of I want to do traditional work. I I call it traditional family medicine. But when they say, okay, well, the overhead costs are rising. um, There's kind of systemic uh, problems in the way that there's compensation and valuation from um, the government, you see, that the government is opening urgent primary care centers, which are actually disrupting the spaces, and saying, "Well, you can you can do the family medicine work you do, but it's under our set of rules." And we're like, "Okay, that doesn't happen anywhere else in the Western world either." And so people are like, "Why? Would that just you know none of this seems like uh, anything I want to touch."
1: Right. I could see that. Mm-hmm. So the the urgent care centers were supposed to alleviate alleviate the burden on emergency rooms. And instead, what we did was make it worse for clinics.
5: Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that they did was they, they changed the purpose of them. The purpose initially was, you're right, it was to provide urgent access for care. Um, and they should have been integrated into the communities. But what they have now said is they were going to do urgent and primary care, which means we're going to attach patients to there. And people say, well, that's not why I don't want to go into work in, uh, you know, uh, a big Operation and, and run my practice there, where I don't have the you know the control over you know how much time I spend with patients, how much you know uh, how many patients I actually need to see, and um, you know just like the day-to-day operations of our clinic. Because you got to remember, these are people that have ten plus years of um, you know graduate level. Uh, sorry, but I guess uh, uh, post high school graduate level work and and they're not going to respond well to being told all right well this is what you're going to do this is how your day is going to yeah. look and and this is what you have to give up if you want to make more money i tell you it's, it, it's, it's a bit insulting
1: dr narang it just every time we talk to you i understand mm-hmm. i get a better idea it's kind of the mm-hmm. the depth and the complication of this problem thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning
5: no problem have a great day And thank you to all the family doctors out there.
1: Yes, thank you to all the family doctors out there day in and day out. That's Dr. Brenda Narang, who is a family physician and the CKNW Global News medical contributor.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: All right, let's talk about equal pay for equal work. You may have heard the big news in the United States anyway. Their women's national soccer team scored a major win. They have now come to an agreement with U.S. soccer for this, and I put this in air quotes, revolutionary idea that they are going to be paid the same now as the men's national team. Keep in mind, the U.S. women's team in the United States. Uh, when it comes to international tournaments and winning, has been far more successful than the men's team, but they were not getting paid the same or equally. So what does this mean for women's pro sports in North America? And also, what is the situation like here in Canada, too? So we thought, hey, let's dig a little deeper into this. Joining us now is Blake Price, host of the Sakaris and Price Show and play-by-play announcer for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Good morning, Blake.
6: Hello, Simi. How are you?
1: I am good. How are you?
6: Very well, thank you.
1: Okay, so what did you think? This is like big news, but in Canada, hasn't this been the case for a couple of years already?
6: Well, Canada reached a short-term uh, settlement that was through the 2020 Olympics. And it's sort of in the ether right now. It's really unclear what the status is. I'm going to guess, and sometimes guessing is a dangerous thing, that they have just proceeded under the same conditions. But there hasn't really been a ton of news on the Canadian frontier. And And you would think the the Canadian woman would be a little bit more uh, um, vocal about this issue if uh, it had proceeded any differently than what had uh, been the agreement up until uh, the 2020 Olympics. We know that was pushed, so uh, that would have gone through 2021 at the very least. We might be into a little bit of a gray area right now as to where Canada is, but the fact that there has been precedent Uh, is reason to be optimistic that the canadian women will have a a similar agreement going forward Uh, but again those things do ultimately have to be bargained and the economics of these things do change as well as rights agreements are are struck with uh, various television networks for both the world cup and and qualifying and beyond so we'll see what this means for the canadian women i i have no reason to be pessimistic about their uh, their payment schedule, but uh, you just you can't take anything for granted.
1: Right. And what I thought interesting, you mentioned the broadcast rights there. So in U.S. soccer, this deal means that they're going to share a portion of that that revenue from broadcast partner and sponsorships uh, 50-50 with the men's team and the women's team. Like that is really quite remarkable, isn't it?
6: Yeah, there's always been a couple of different ways to to sort of argue this on both sides of this is that Hey, the uh, men's World Cup is arguably the biggest event on the globe. Like it rivals the Olympics, and in a lot of metrics, actually beats the Olympics in terms of just how big the event is. And so, you know, the, the proponents of why the disparity existed would would say, yeah, but there's there's just there's more eyeballs, the bigger event. So when you you know achieve something in the men's World Cup, that's seen by more people. There's a, a bigger brand recognition for U.S. soccer, all that all that sort of stuff. On the flip side of the argument is the women's team has always been better. Has always has all, or used to yeah. always qualified. Heck, has always challenged to win the World Cup. So they've actually had a. And even if you just if you just televised a random friendly, uh, the American women versus Sweden, and put it on American television, that would do better in a lot of cases, in most cases, than a men's friendly versus Sweden. The women's soccer team have turned into rock stars in the last couple of decades, really. Uh, and so they have said, yeah, you know, in most of the world, that might be true. But in North America, the Canadian women, the American women for the longest time have had a higher profile than the men side. It's amongst the. Uh, fewest nations that could boast that where the, the women's teams are actually more prominent events because our women's teams are better. So uh, that that actually changes sort of the, the dynamic here of uh, the economics because the Iran economics would say it's a bigger event, more promise. It, it kind of makes some sense because the broadcast rights deals are worse You know, exponentially more on the men's side than the women's. But then, when you realize actually the women's are more popular in North America, then it changes everything.
1: So, do you think this changes things for other sports leagues where it is both men and women playing?
6: Well, like, are you referring to something like the NBA and the WNBA?
1: Yeah, the NBA, WNBA, like, even on the international side, you look at hockey as well, like, right, Canadian women's hockey, uh, really U.S. women's hockey, too. I mean, do do these associations now have to say, listen, we have to be careful about uh, these deals that we make, we have to make sure that the women's teams are getting properly compensated?
6: The difficulty there is in national sports organizations like the U.S. Soccer Federation in this case, and and Canada Soccer and Soccer Canada in in our side of the border. uh, They have a uh, sort of a bigger moral burden, shall we say, um, than a private enterprise. That is the case with uh, a national women's soccer league south of the border, and the uh, well, the mess that is Canadian or the, the mess that is professional women's hockey right now as they try to. Uh, find their way with the two leagues, maybe forming one league. And Anyway, those are private enterprises. So those have a, uh, a different person to answer to. They have a bottom line to deal with. So it's a little, uh, little more murky on how they get to equal pay. I mean, let's face it, you're, it's going to be a long time before we see uh, a women's professional hockey player making $10 million a year like we see in the national hockey. The economics do not support that. Um, and, and some people might be screaming into the radio saying, say, well, the National Hockey League should take a, a bigger onus on, on, on this sort of thing. The, a, a lot of the people in women's hockey don't want the National Hockey League involved. They, they want to go their own way. They don't want to feel in a, in a similar but not perfect uh, comparison. The Canadian Football League doesn't want anything to do with the NFL, right? They don't want to be under the right. thumb of the NFL. Uh, I, I, there is a body of people in, in women's hockey that think, we want to do this ourselves. We don't want to feel like we're a second thought to the National Hockey League. Um, and, but some people say, well, that's where the money is. They can help you bring salaries up. So there's two different thoughts there. I don't know that I, I have the right answer there. It certainly feels like the oomph of the National Hockey League brand might help the women's game get to a better payment scale. Uh, On the plus side, we do have news in the past couple of weeks of a record-setting women's contract of $100,000, and and that's a step in the right direction. But my goodness, it seems like we're we're miles and miles and miles, light years away from, from that $10 million deal.
1: Oh, boy, it sure does. All right, Blake, thank you.
6: Anytime,
1: Timmy. Appreciate that. That's Blake Price, host of the Sakaris and Price Show. He's also, he also does play-by-play for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Talking about, you know, leveling the playing field here. It's still very challenging. Yes, this was uh, great news for women's soccer in the United States at the women's national team. Remember, they had to sue for this. There was a lot of controversy about this. A lot of discussion. Uh, they scored a major win finally as they came to an agreement with U.S. Soccer. They will be paid the same as the men's national team. And that means everything right down to the broadcast revenue, the sponsorship revenue will be a 50-50 split. That is huge. But whether that is for everyone else, we're still waiting to see what kind of deal the Canadian women's soccer team has versus the men's. Now, they're both... Successful Canadian women have been more successful in the last 20 years or so, but now we've got the men going back to the World Cup. So, yeah, I think the pressure is on to see how Canada and Canadian soccer is going to treat its athletes as well.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know
1: that there are so many people in this province who are desperately seeking a family doctor. So what kind of options are available to them? That is something that our contributor Raji Sohal has been taking a look at, and she joins us now. Good morning, Raji.
7: Hey, Simi. Yeah, so some people have been pushed to the point that they have considered private. I don't think we're going to see, you know, any sort of surge of people going private. The reason is obvious. It's because it's simply not accessible. You know, some people pay around $5,000 to subscribe to annual private care. And, you know, we look at these gas prices and grocery bills lately, and I don't think that many folks have that extra cash to spend on it. But the appeal is certainly there, especially for people who have something Uh, maybe chronic going on with their health or maybe someone's been frustrated without a family doctor for years and they're getting on in their years and thinking, okay, I actually just need someone to look at me as a whole system. And if you go to a walk-in clinic, it's, uh, it's easy to feel like a number. Um, My family doctor is not uh, very close to my house. So on some occasions I have chosen to go to the walk-in clinic and plastered on the walls of the weight room in each, and in each clinic room is a sign that says, keep your appointment Under five minutes. The first time I ever saw that sign, Simi, I chuckled because I thought it was a joke. And then I realized, oh, no, they mean it. They mean business here. They got to get people through. And one doctor I talked to, Kevin McLeod, he says says that there are enough family doctors already. The problem is they left. So they were in the system. There were enough people trained, but they left. Um, So he said it's because the work itself is unappealing. And, and we've heard that time and time again. So what happens is it's unappealing work because it's demanding and it's also so expensive.
8: You know, it's simple math, right? Like the family doctor gets about $30 to $33 to see you when you go into their clinic. But, you know, in, in the lower main, mainland, especially the overhead is easily $100 an hour, You got to pay staff, you got to pay a nurse, you got to pay your property taxes, you got to pay your rent, you've got all the equipment and supply. So, you know, you've got to see three to four patients an hour just to break even. Well, simple math, like that's 15 minutes an appointment, but you got to get paid as well. So then you've got to see six to eight people an hour to make it work. And, you know, any patient out there knows that if you're seeing eight people an hour, the, the quality goes down.
7: Yeah, Simi. So I think a lot of doctors end up going to specialist practice for that reason. Just the numbers don't make sense for them to stay in it. And and Kevin McLeod, he works in as an internal doctor, internal medicine, um, and he said that the whole picture that family doctors provide that is very unique. And a good family doctor will look at a patient and look at look at things holistically, not all compartmentalized. And here's how he says a family doctor might think as they approach a patient.
8: Okay, well, you know, this patient with diabetes, I I gotta think about getting them a PAP test or they need a mammogram, or you know, their dad had colon cancer. We better set them up for screening. You know, it's it's just a different, you know, a specialist practice is different. We're not, we're not sort of preventatively touching base with people for those issues because we're just so overwhelmed with everything else. Um, and we're, or we're focusing on their main issue, or but I, I do think we're moving more towards a subspecialty type of care. the, the problem with that is that you get a whole bunch of, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but you get a whole bunch of partialists looking after a patient, right? So a patient isn't like, well, a heart problem and a diabetes problem and a kidney problem. And, you know, and then they've got some depression because of all these problems. they're, They're not like separate things in silos, right? They're a whole biochemical organism that's all intertwined and all of those things interrelate. And that's really the power of a good family doctor, right? Like they can see how all of those things interconnect. And it doesn't mean you don't need a specialist to help with some of those more complex single organ systems, but, you know, going to four different doctors, because you have four different organ systems involved, you know, it's very disjointed. Everybody's prescribing different medications and sending tests and other things. And, you know, it's, it's, it's much more complicated for the patient.
7: Yeah. And Simi, not only is it more complicated for the patient, but so many aspects of someone's health can go overlooked. I have um, a friend who she had no symptoms, but she had a great family doctor who noticed she had a lump in her stomach and they ended up being able to save her life because yes, that lump was cancerous. She had no clue otherwise. She just had this excellent family doctor who asked Good questions, did a proper exam on her at her uh, annual visit and figured that out for her. And now, you know, patients see doctors because we're not experts on our own health, right? But you might, so you might notice a symptom, and you go check it out. But if you don't notice a symptom, sometimes your family doctor is the one to kind of probe that out of you from talking to you uh, and knowing you over time and knowing your family's history and that kind of thing.
1: But also, let's admit it: even when we have symptoms, we still don't go to the doctor, right? <laughs> like that's Fair the problem enough. too. Like you may think, "Oh, this thing has been bugging me. I should go to the doctor." But if you don't have one, and you know that it's going to take so much time and effort to, you know, go through the hassle of trying to get into a clinic, you're going to put it off. And I think that's what's actually happening out there. There's probably chronic conditions that are getting worse because people are putting off the incredible time commitment, you know, that it's taking to just go and talk to a doctor for the, as you put it, six minutes that you're going to get.
7: Yeah. I I know someone who's been trying to get a family doctor now for a year and she brought up this story with me of someone else saying that they don't like their family doctor, so they're looking for another one. And she said, "Are you kidding? Beggars cannot be choosers. Yeah, you in have one. This, yeah. If you have a family doctor, keep them. Period. Just because it's so hard to get a new one these days to get any family doctor, really."
1: Okay. So some people would actually pay to go private. I remember this actually, because when I moved into my neighborhood about 10 years ago and we needed a new family doctor and it was hard at that time too. I remember seeing this new clinic that had opened up and I phoned them and it was a private clinic. As you point out, it was, I think, I, so I seem to remember it was $2,500 a year and like a couple hundred dollars a month. To a, it was like the country club of, of medical clinics, right? So I'm you yeah. sure you'd always be able to get an appointment and that would be a problem. But the point is you were going to pay so much money every year just to be able to. And I thought, this is crazy. This is crazy. That was 10 years ago. I, like, I wonder if it's gotten worse.
7: So prices have gone up, and I and you know whenever I meet a doctor or interview a doctor, I do always stumble upon this question eventually, where I ask them, "Would you go into private care?" And every doctor that I've ever spoken to in BC has always told me, "No, I believe in universal care. Uh, I wouldn't support that system personally." But the other thing that they always tell me is that they see the appeal because they see how broken our healthcare system is. And now as we hover around a million B.C. residents who still don't have a family doctor, another thing that I keep hearing from doctors is why are they not being consulted more by government? That they hear these leaders say, and it, and it doesn't matter which party, that they have the solutions, but they're not willing to share what they think that full picture would look like and that these doctors want to be consulted because they see where there are cracks in the system. They see where it's broken mm-hmm. and they would love to be a part of the problem solving. See, that seems like a simple thing that we can
1: do. All right, Roger, thank you. Thanks.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Yes, it's time now for our new series on CKNW. It's called Capacity Crisis, taking a look at BC's healthcare system, where we're exploring the direct impact of this crisis on different groups, different individuals, and all of you out there, everyday British Columbians. So what we're talking about today as well, you probably heard about this in the news, is that the controversy that families who have children who are on the spectrum are dealing with right now, they feel that the government is not helping them for their children to get the whole care, the whole continual care that their children need. So we thought, let's find out what's really going on here. Joining us now is Julia Boyle, the Executive Director of Autism BC. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here, because maybe you could help explain this to us. What kind of changes has the government made to how families deal with autism?
9: Yeah, so the the BC government announced in October of last year that it will be cutting individualized funding, which means the funding that families get directly from the government to to organize services for their, their kids on the autism spectrum. And they'll be moving to a more institutionalized model Where services will be provided through what they call family connection centres that will be um, across the province and and mandated under the Ministry of Children and Family Development. So it's a big shift in terms of parent autonomy and control and what families, the decisions that families get to make in terms of the the support services that they get for their their children. So it's definitely concerning. Um, We're watching the situation closely and trying to to really bring up the voices of of families and of parents so that, you know, the system will be designed to best support kids.
1: Right. So what is the concern here? Like if you're a parent with a child who's getting treatment and thinking, Hey, you know what? This treatment is working really well. Are
9: you going to be able to stay with that treatment? That's a big question we have, and it's not really clear yet. Um, like, there are a lot of you know issues with the current system, and I, I know the show is about the capacity of the healthcare system. And in the same way that um, you know there's a shortage of family doctors in BC, there's also a shortage of service providers. So there are long wait lists for kids on the autism spectrum or um, kids with different support needs to be able to access a speech and language pathologist or an occupational therapist or a behavioral um, analyst or behavioral consultant. Um, particularly with ones with specializations and whatever challenge um, that that child needs. Uh, those wait lists have been there for a long time. Um, they, they are It's very stressful for a family who is seeing their child need a certain service and they're not able to access it. And ultimately, it does impact the growth and development of children when they're not able to access those services. Um, that is a huge issue in the current system and the new system that's being proposed doesn't address that issue. Uh, the, the government is not investing in the training and recruitment of service providers. Um, they are, they are, there is no big plan to address that issue of their just aren't enough speech and language pathologists in BC. So it's, it's concerning that they're, they're kind of pitching this new system as a solution to all of the problems that the current system has. But really, it's, it's missing the mark on this particular factor. So how far along is this plan? Well, they've just launched the request for proposals um, for these family connection centres. And the, family, the there's some early implementation sites. So they're, they're launching four of these centres. Eventually, there'll be 40. And they're planning to open in February of next year.
1: That's pretty soon, I would imagine, for families who have, you're probably quite used to dealing with the situation that you have, if you're happy with what you're
9: getting right now. Yeah, I mean, the government keeps saying, like, oh, this is a far way away, like, it's
3: not for another two
9: years that, you know, we're cutting this funding, but two years is not a long time to design a completely new system. It, It is definitely very concerning one of the things that comes up in the request for proposals, if you go through and, and read it, um, it speaks to a shift away from one-to-one therapies or one-to-one support services, um, which means that they'll be addressing uh, the fact that there aren't enough service providers like SLPs by moving to group group support. So instead of an SLP being able to work one-on-one with a child and you know, setting goals and working towards the goals that that child has, they'll now be working to group classes because they don't have enough FSLP. So that's a big shift in the model that only is kind of in the fine print of the request for proposals that the community is very concerned about now because research and best practices show that one-to-one supports and therapy is what benefits kids the most.
1: I mean, didn't we learn this all the hard way to begin with, Julia? Like, I- I've been doing this a long time, and I s- I remember back in the 1990s when parents uh, w- with kids who have autism were struggling just to get some recognition from the government to get that special one-on-one treatment.
9: Yeah, there is research, and there you know there are many best practices that show that one-to-one supports and and one-to-one therapy is you know proven to be the best way for children to, to meet developmental milestones and to, you know, reach their potential and grow um, grow as all kids do. So it is concerning, and, and it's not something um, that I think a one-year pilot in a few early implementation sites is going to be able to prove that that will be good enough for kids across B.C., Um, So that is something that we're raising with the Ministry of Children and Family Development right now. And I hope that they um, will hear the concerns and look at the research. Um, I know that the Autism Community Training Nonprofit also recently launched a survey with um, service providers on the registry of autism service providers. And they're asking questions like, okay, of of the registered service providers, how many of them? will be retiring in the next 5 years or how many of them want to work part time or work full time how many of them want to work for these new um, family connection centers so i hope that the the ministry of children and family development also looks at that research um, which will show you know the gaps in the service service providers and, and and where bc is at with regards to the number of service providers that that it has i think that that research will be really telling but Honestly, this is storming ahead, regardless of the, the the research and the advocacy that we have been doing for the last six or seven months. So we're kind of grappling with, okay, what can we do now to to really advocate for the needs of kids in BC? Parents must be so stressed out. Yeah, they are, and you know that's one of um, one of the Ministry of Trump- children and family development's key point is that parents are exhausted. They say parents are exhausted from being their child's case manager but I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that parents are exhausted from advocating. Parents are exhausted from having to fight the system, of having to again and again and again fight for what their child needs and I don't see that being different in this new system. I think that parents will continue to have to advocate for what what their child needs so it's exhausting it's absolutely exhausting
1: i bet yeah julia thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it thank you for having me best of luck that's julia boyle executive director of autism bc talking about the struggles that uh, parents are going through, families of autistic children are going through, because the government is overhauling and changing the way you know these these situations are funded and dealt with. BC is going to launch a kind of one-stop support center for children uh, with conditions like ADHD and autism, uh, but the whole overhaul to that has parents very concerned that it's going to change whatever successful treatment their child might be getting right now, and that is sounds like full steam ahead according to Julia uh, next February next you know late winter early spring that that's going to be kicking in so we'll talk more about that too